And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with special guests Andy Duncan and Ellen Clay just on the wild-talking, hard-rambling, widely diversifying Coot Street Podcast! Yay! Thank you. I can add a few syllables to that, Jonathan, and we won't have to have a podcast at all. We'll just have a half-hour introduction. I'm thinking about putting out an introduction greatest hits, actually. Hey, we're one of the few podcasts that doesn't have a theme song. So, hello, Andy. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to be here in and, the sense that I am here. <laughs> or any of uh-huh. And Ellen, thank you after oh, a little sort of mournful tone, the great lost podcasts of Toronto. It's good to have you back with us. It's, it, it took a lot of convincing to get me to come back and podcast with you after you callously tossed my last conversation away, but I have forgiven you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I can, I can assure you that it's being safely recorded here, and I'm sure confidently that it's being backed up by Mr. Wolf. Oh, that. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, your confidence perhaps is misplaced, but... Wait a second. Just keep going. Keep yeah. talking among yourselves. <laughs> about backups. <laughs> you see, this okay, is okay. Uh, anyway, Andy, it's been it's been what, Gary? Um, the backup wow. isn't working. Don't worry. Okay, I'll, and I'll go, yeah. What I wanted to say is, we have uh, two of the finest award-winning, award-nominated short story writers in our fi- in our field. And before we get much further into this, uh, something for our listeners to watch out for is. I'm fairly certain the first collaborative novella between Ellen Clages and Andy Duncan. Okay, it maybe not. Yes. Yes. Well, if you don't, it, 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 yes, it is. The first time Andy and I have tried to collaborate. The reason I was tongue-tied is I wanted to congratulate Andy on, on his actually winning a Nebula after, what, six nominations? Uh, six or seven, I would have to look it up on Mark Kelly's database to be sure. But, and that was but cool. it was a wonderful story. I, I, I took your new collection up with me on vacation and, and read it all and revisited stuff. And you're, you're a hell of a writer, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. That's good to know. Uh, I need reminding after this week's labors. <laughs> have, love, have love's labors been lost have they, this week? Well, this has been one of those weeks where most of what I wrote was on the order of, he walked into the room. Hello, he said. I am a character. <laughs> he, crossed, he crossed the room to the light switch and flipped it on. How does that work, he said. Let's have some plot now. <laughs> That's, that sounds like excellent fiction writing, Mr. Duncan. <laughs> it's how the pros so- do it. Did they did they ship your nebula from from San Jose successfully? They sure did. Steve Silver was very good about that. It arrived right on schedule, and it's sitting uh, in my uh, kitchen right now. In your kitchen? Really? In the kitchen under under tasteful overhead track lighting. <laughs> okay, that's nice. Do you, do you wipe the bacon grease off of it now and then and. <laughs> 
Now, I guess that this begins to touch on actually a subject. I wasn't sure where we were going to, going to start with in the in the podcast today, but the you know how you uh, manage, handle, and display your awards. You know, Gordon Van Gelder infamously uses his Hugo's as a toilet roll holder, and I know that Gary plays dress ups with his. I don't have any nebulas. Well, you play, can't play dress ups with, but you've got the World Fantasy Award with it. Has the World Fantasy Award dresses it up. Well, oh, this is this is your fault, Ellen. Mm. Because I told you to dress. You, you're the, Ellen. For, for those of you who don't have World Fantasy Awards and want one, <laughs> uh, contact Ellen Clay. Just, well, wait, I don't have one, and I want one. Oh, well, okay. But Pat but, Murphy taught me about dressing them up. Okay, so anyway, so Pat Murphy discovered there is a doll supply store whose various outfits, professor hats and sailor hats and... Lawn dachshunds. What? Lawn dachshunds. L-A-W-N dachshunds. It was a catalog where you could get a stone dachshund to fit on, sit on your front lawn and dress it up for every month of the year. And that's how Pat started dressing her Lovecraft because it turned out that the lawn dachshund was exactly the shape as the Lovecraft statue and all of the hats, but it would come with a hat and a little outfit yes. and like a scarf and things. But they said they were designed originally for lawn dachshunds. But they exactly fit the World Fantasy yes. Award. So. And also Baskin and Robbins uh, Sunday caps, the ones that are baseball caps that you get the ice cream in um, in the summer, those also fit Lovecraft perfectly. I'm just speechless. <laughs> um, On I the mean, other hand, it's not not no hats fit a nebula. No, well, okay, both of you have nebulas. Both of us have nebulas, yes. And that is as rare, if not rarer, than a World Fantasy Award, I would think. Um, and but they're all different. Uh, Andy, describe your nebula to us, because it's got a galaxy swirling inside a piece of lucite, right? It is. It is a. It is a. a, a it is a beautiful thing. It is a lucite block um, with, of course, all the usual information on a plaque at the base of who I am and what I won for. But on display within the block is this uh, shimmering spiral galaxy and a number of uh, shiny, colorful, polished rocks or stones, depending on where you live, um, that, uh, that represent, of course, uh, planets and planetoids. So, uh, and my understanding is each nebula, while they're all of the same design, shape, and size, each one is is visually unique. Yeah, the the, every, the the stones that they use. I don't know if it's every year or for every different one, but I know that each year the artist that does the stones picks a different type. There's jasper and there's but there's polished spheres of various hmm. rocks um, that. And the one that I've got is sort of banded like um, Jupiter. Do any of us have Hugos? What? None of us have Hugos, do we? No, the Hugos, the, the base is designed by an, an artist, a different yeah. artist every year. Yeah. Um, but the rocket ship itself is... Mm. It's pretty much a rocket classic. ship, yeah. 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 So I do not have I... a Hugo. Yeah. You want one? I do not have a Hugo. Okay. Everyone wants one. I'd like one, too. None of us here have Hugos. Well, I don't have a World Fantasy. Andy has two World Fantasies. And he has That's, a theme song. 
<laughs> Andy has a theme song? Andy has a theme song. The year that Andy won, where was it? It was in Montreal. And, in and Montreal. Karen, Karen, Karen Joy no, Fowler. No, I Go just ahead. said it was 2001. Yeah. 2001. Okay, 2001. Karen Joy Fowler's taught Kelly Link. Karen Joy Fowler had a neighbor when she was like six or seven whose name was Andy. And her neighbor Andy had written himself his own superhero song. And so Karen taught it to Kelly Link, and Kelly Link taught us to a bunch of us. And we said, okay, if Andy wins, we're going to sing the Andy song. And there were about 12 of us sitting together, and Andy won. Um, I can't remember if it was for the story or the collection first. Collection. But so you, so you won, and, you, and he got up to the podium, and, and everybody was applauding, and there was no time. And then Andy gave a lovely speech, and we were all sitting there going, we should sing. And Andy was coming back, and we finally said, it's now or never. And we all stood up and sang the Andy song. And everybody looked kind of gobsmacked. And <laughs> Funnily enough. David Hartwell looked even more gobsmacked than everybody else because this was the World Fantasy Awards, and it was a serious professional thing, and a whole bunch of people were standing up and singing. Um, and then Andy won the second World Fantasy Award that afternoon, and we stood up and sang again, and so did half of the room. Um, would you like to hear the Andy song? I have. I think we Do need we, to. Yeah. I think we need I to. Think, yeah. Andy, uh, Andy, you remember all this? Oh yeah. I do. I, I okay. So far, she is not wrong. <laughs> all right. Okay, now let's hear the lyrics. Who can climb the highest tree? Andy. Who can find a bumblebee? Andy. Who can swim and who can dive? Who's the greatest boy alive? Andy, what a guy is he. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and that comes from Karen Fowler's next-door neighbor in, in Bloomington, Indiana, whose name was Andy. Um, but at the World Fantasy Awards, we sang that twice to Andy Duncan. And there's a picture in Locus of me and Ellen Kushner and Delia Sherman and Lori Winter and four or five other women kneeling at Andy's feet and singing to him while he holds two giant ugly heads. Can I just say my World Fantasy Award win was nowhere near that much fun. Well, we will, it, we will invent a Jonathan song for you the next time yeah. you win. Nothing really like scans with Jonathan very well. Okay, we'll invent a strand song. <laughs> I, I have a sequel to that. Yeah? Oh? To relate. Um, at... The next day at that convention, I was going down the escalator into the lobby in this vast atrium, and there was a group of strangers going up the escalator across the way, and a stranger pointed at me and he yelled, that's the guy with the song. <laughs> he, said, he said, how come he gets a song? I want a song. And everybody on the escalator started denouncing me because they did not have a song. Well, he had a point. A lot of people have World Fantasy Awards, but not very many of us have songs. Well, and not very many people have won two in the same afternoon. That's true. Well, a few people have. You'd be surprised. Uh, it's annoying people like Margot Lanigan and Jeffrey Ford. They do it. And, and well, yeah. Mary Rickard won maybe three at one time. No, she won she two? two that afternoon. Okay. I've got a funny feeling that Jeffrey Ford might have done it twice, you know, just to be and really does annoying. Does he have a song? No. <laughs> Nobody's got a fuckload of, of World Fantasy Awards. That is true. <laughs> well, we are well, talking... We don't... We don't really know how many of us have songs. We we just 
They may not be publicly <laughs> sung. Good point. Yes. Well, if if it's not publicly sung, it isn't really a song. <laughs> <laughs> because the whole point of of that was was all of us standing up and serenading the room with the Andy song before we lost our nerve. Oh, well, this whole podcast has gone down a rabbit hole. <laughs> it, it was a lovely gesture. It was much appreciated. And Karen, Karen was just sorry she couldn't be there. <laughs> you mean she wasn't even there to help perpetrate her crime? She, no. No, she had, she had delegated Kelly Link to teach the rest of us the Andy song. And so Kelly went around for the two days before the banquet teaching a dozen people the Andy song and we practiced enough so that if we had to spring into action and sing the Andy song, we could, and we did, and there, and th thus is history made. And were you in the room, Gary? I, I was not. I, what? Where was this? Montreal World Fantasy. I was not 2001. there. I was not there. So you're the only one of us without a con uh, an actual connection to this event. I have no connection to this event, and and I deny any rumors to the contrary. <laughs> Knowing all that effort that went into it, I'm I'm especially glad I won. Mm. It's yeah, uh, I mean, it's disappointing it would have been for all of you if uh, all that work had been for naught. <laughs> well, we were pretty sure you were going to win because that's because it, it's a hell of a collection. Mm, it is. We were we were kind of surprised that you won the second one. Because, you know, really, somebody winning two World Fantasy Awards in, in the same afternoon is really amazing. But we were pretty sure you were going to get at least one of them. So the, the other thing is that none of us actually went to the banquet. <laughs> we just snuck in and in, when they put the chairs in so you can watch the awards and, and all sat together so that if we needed to leap up and be a choir, we could be a choir. <laughs> Can we talk about something I, literary? Well, I was going to say, we could, say <laughs> could we segue into talking about you know the story of Andy's that won the, uh, the the nebula that got us off down this rabbit hole, or about writing short fiction? How about a short fiction writing question, Gary? Well, one of the questions which comes to my mind in terms of both Andy and Ellen's work, and it, inclu it includes the story Close Encounters, and see if you understand this question the way I phrase it. There's a story. <laughs> Does a science fiction or fantasy story have to be science fiction or fantasy in order to be science fiction or fantasy? Hell no. Okay, Ellen knows what I'm talking about. Andy? <laughs> uh, what, what Ellen said. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, my point is this. Uh, I've, been reading, I've, I've been reading a lot of years best, and there are... There's there's various stories that do interesting things with their relationship to genre. One is there are a number of stories which are perfectly good murder mysteries that might be set in a future dystopian society, but they'd be perfectly decent murder mysteries if they set if they were set in London in the 1970s. There are other stories, and this is where I get close to a story like Close Encounters, and and the the two stories of Ellen's that I'm thinking of now haven't been published yet, so I don't. Where where you have a story which has the affect of science fiction or fantasy, it has the voice of a science fiction or fantasy storyteller, and it may or may not cross that line. Or it may cross the line in such an understated way that a lot of readers overlook it. it I, I think that Andy and I both have written a lot of stories that do not pass the fanboy test. And what is the fanboy test? Well, this isn't science fiction. Oh, okay. 
or in some cases, this isn't fantasy. Um, and I mean, Close Encounters is is certainly about science fiction, but the stuff that actually happens in the story is mostly lovely mainstream. What makes it a slice of life? Yeah, and what makes it? My, I would argue, and Andy, you can correct me. I would argue that what makes it an excellent story isn't necessarily the same thing that makes it a science fiction story. I I think that's 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 a valid uh, assessment. I I do think though that there's a lot of stuff going on out at that lake shore in the middle act of the story mm-hmm. that is hard that is hard to explain in anything other than science fictional terms i mean yes there are possible uh well i was about to say there are plenty of terrestrial explanations but of course science fiction is not necessarily extraterrestrial so True. so what am I so what am I saying really? I guess a story that devotes that much space to aerial pheno- strange aerial phenomena and the attempt to study it, measure it, record it scientifically, um, a story that devotes that much uh, word count to all that. To those special effects and to the gadgets, um, pretty much fits what I think of as as the science uh, fiction genre. And I'm I will say that that seems to be uh, a consensus with a lot of rank and file science fiction writers and voters and editors because um, unlike Jonathan's year's best volume which includes both science fiction and fantasy and lots of interesting stuff in between uh, neither David Hartwell nor Gardner does why do that they are adamant that their volume is all SF all the time and yet they both pick close encounters for the book and in fact uh, Gardner says in his introduction, which I was reading the other day, that um, that my story was one of the uh, one of the most solid science fiction stories that the magazine of fantasy and science fiction ran last year. So he he clearly does not see it as 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 a borderline case. Well, see, for me, reading the story, the the atmospheric stuff and 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 the scientific measurements and everything, I was fine with those because those could be a mainstream story about, I mean, it's about science, but it's not necessarily science fiction. What made it science fiction for me was the dog. <laughs> and because there's kind of no getting around the dog. Yeah. And if, I mean, if, I think... If- I think it is not the the most non-science fictional science fiction story that you write because there are other stories like Unique Chicken Walks in Reverse that you kind of if 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 it is science fiction you have to squint for it um, and Close Encounters certainly isn't that but what I loved about the story was that it was written 
in such a ordinary these are folks kind of way and then there's there's the dog and i love the dog mm. <laughs> in my argument though the though the apparent 300 pound venusian dog we do have to take the narrator's word for all that true well and and i was and i was thinking that as i was reading it except that the very very end if I'm remembering correctly, I see. I see. You you're right. Dog, you make the dog unequivocally real and alien. There, there is a dog at the end. We have objective evidence of that. And but, I lived next door to somebody with a Saint Bernard that was about 200 pounds, but really, it didn't hold a candle to that dog. <laughs> so I am willing to believe that the only explanation for that particular dog is extraterrestrial. I well, that sets me fine. <laughs> but, but I guess it's possible to write a mainstream story about the stuff of science fiction that we're willing to take as science fiction for whatever reason. I mean, is there a difference between a, a mainstream story about science fictional stuff and a science fictional story? I, I like writing mainstream stories about science. Mm. And then hoping that I can find an editor who will buy it for publication read by science fiction readers. I, th I think there are a couple, uh, there's a distinction to be made here because part of what Jonathan could be referring to are things like Sharon McCrum murder mysteries set at science fiction conventions, for example. Yeah, zombies of the gene pool. Uh, zombies of the gene pool or the uh, bimbos of the death sun. Um, and those are clearly affectionate tributes to the science fiction culture, but they're, but they're murder mysteries. They're not, there's nothing science fictional about them, which I think is a little bit different from what you were talking about, about a science fictional element or an element that could be read either way. I'm, I'm really fascinated by science, and sometimes I have the problem with the stuff that I'm fascinated about with science is just true, hmm. which means that trying to sell it to a science fiction market is sometimes difficult because it's not, it's not, and I also like to set things in the past, and, and I think mm. I share that with Andy, that we, we like the historical stuff, and we like the slightly weird, but not the Im, Im, improbable or implausible, just the stuff that's like, well, dang, <laughs> what, you know, and, and there are several explanations for why that's mm. a dang, um, and you can read it in on several levels. And and I'm I'm working on a story this week that it occurs to me in this context I do increasingly, and that is it's a story where there is a science fictional explanation for everything if you want to go that route. And there are there are alternate explanations. Do do you remember the beautiful scene in the birds, the Hitchcock movie? Mm -hmm. It's my uh -huh. favorite. It's my favorite scene in the movie. It's the middle of the movie when all the uh, representatives of humanity are trapped in the cafe during the the bird attack, and oh, they're yeah. all and they're all exchanging their theories about what's going on. And some have a religious explanation, and some have a science fictional explanation, and 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 on and on. 
and and the movie endorses none of them. In fact, the the movie seems to encourage us to be skeptical of all of them because the, the birds just are. And and I yeah. and I love that scene. And increasingly, I I see myself sort of trying to replicate it. But I have the story I'm working on this week has another obsessive narrator who has experienced what to him is inexplicable um, and he's trying to explain it and he's explaining it in absolutely science fictional terms um, and I sort of believe it but if somebody else were to read this story and have a completely uh, different interpretation like my religious family members who read Close Encounters and said it's entirely a story about religious belief and they made a very convincing case for that. Um, but but I, I very much like stories that, as a reader, not just as a writer, I very much like stories that, that admit to this sort of conversation, to, to multiple interpretations. Now, granted, James Gunn told me this summer at the University of Kansas, one of my heroes, James Gunn said that I was more comfortable with ambiguity than he was. On the other hand, Gunn himself, as I reminded him, is the author of The Listeners, which, <laughs> yeah. is, which, is, which is a beautiful example of a, of a mainstream story about science and scientists at work uh, that has, of course, the, the, the plot element of the, the signals from space, the, uh, the first right. contact. Um, so he was he was a pioneer of this sort of thing, I, I would argue, and he looked sheepish and <laughs> sort of admitted it. But well, I think a lot of times when I'm writing a story, what what interests me is the the slightly mysterious bit or the slightly ambiguous bit or the the curiosity or the the the, the curious thing, and without the ambiguity, it ends up being trite. Because it's like, oh yeah, it's this, and and if you can quantify what makes the mysterious thing a mystery, it takes all the mystery away from it. And if you can play that fine line with the ambiguity, then you've got people reading it one way or reading it the other way, but there is no answer. And and I really like leaving readers with more questions than answers. Um, not all readers enjoy this, but if if I figure out the answer, as far as I can tell, I'm writing the kind of story that I would write in seventh grade where it seems really, really obvious to me. And so I then try to move it around going, okay, the thing that I'm fascinated by is this bit of science and the fact that it could go this way or this way. How can I write the story without falling on either side of that line? And let the reader go, well, it's a story about A, and another reader go, well, no, it's a story about B. And I'm going, actually, it's I'm I'm you're, I'm trying to skate right between the two of those and not not have and not pick a side. I could see I mean I, it maybe when you talk about the fanboy test, you may be talking about people who come to science fiction from a certain kind of uh, literal mindedness, I guess. I mean, in, in, in defense of Jim Gunn, I think he, Jim who was my first teacher of science fiction anywhere when I was at the University of Kansas, grew up in a generation in which 
if he, even if he or other writers like Sturgeon and, well, Asimov probably wasn't inclined to do it, but even if they wanted to write ambiguity or write edgy stories, the editors didn't want ambiguity. The editors wanted to know this or that. The first story I read of Jim Gunn was a story called The Cave of Night, which is a heartbreaking story about an astronaut who can't be brought to Earth. It's, um, and, you know, three years after the story was published, it wasn't science fiction anymore. Right. Uh, but... It was hard SF when it appeared, but the point of the story wasn't, you didn't need an astronaut for that. You could have had somebody in a fishing boat. You could have written the story in a number of different ways. Um, but the story, the, people, cave of night, the Cave of Night, is also ambiguous by the end about yes. whether this amazing rescue of the astronaut ever really happened. It, well, and it, then it, has this, it has this CM Cornbluth sort of a cynical turn at the end uh, to what extent has everybody been gulled it's all it's also a story very much about media hype and 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 mistrust of of the media and the ambiguities of the journalism profession which gunn knows very well um so, and Andy, so you're the person i talked to in years who's read this story but uh, go ahead so but and you're absolutely right there's a lot of ambiguity in, in that story, but, you be, but your point is well taken that the, the ambiguities are there if you're looking for them, but he had to tell an overtly science fiction story in that era to, to work them in. Well, I also, I also think that what, what Gary said about three years later, it wasn't science fiction. And I know for me, and I will extrapolate to Andy, we are both fascinated with the nostalgia of what used to be science fiction that isn't anymore because mm. it's just real. Mm. Um, but I like going back to the time when the thing that is now taken for granted was still science fiction. It didn't exist yeah. yet. It existed in the imaginations and it existed in science fiction literature and trying to capture that sense of wonder about something that is now commonplace or or not even you know not, not even considered it's just um for that's that's a, a lot of the fascination for me was going back to to some degree when i was a kid and even farther back and going what would it be like if you're looking at the moon and you think someday someday somebody's gonna go to the moon now, somebody went to the moon 44 years ago. It's no longer as fascinating to me because it happened. But if you go back to like 1950-something, there is that sense of wonder that I love about science fiction, even though going to the moon is no longer science fiction because it's just nasty. It is, but in your... Gee, I'm thinking, Ellen, you and I are at least old enough. I don't know about Andy and Jonathan. Yeah. I remember 1969, and I remember, I remember going out on my front lawn. So okay, yeah, I, I remember definitely. Camp. They allowed us a TV okay. at summer camp. Well, I was I, w I went outside, and it, because it was a weird experience for me, the moon landing. First, the, what it reminded me more of than anything else was Bradbury's story, The Pedestrian, because I was the only one outside. Everybody else in the suburb where I was living at the time was was inside watching television, and I remember looking at the moon and thinking, there, there, there are people there. Now, I've been reading science fiction for 10, 15 years at that point, I guess. And I was thinking, that's okay, this is like a sense of wonder 
that's a fulfillment rather than an expectation. You grow up with the expectation, and you're looking at the moon and saying, yeah, we're up there. That was just absolutely astonishing to me. I just I just finished writing a part of a novel that takes place in 57, and the people are going out in the early, right before dawn, mm-hmm. uh, to watch Sputnik go yeah. over. And it's the first time in human history that there's been something up there in the sky that A, is moving, that isn't a, a meteor, mm-hmm. but, but that hasn't always been there. Um, and I... I have such a hard time wrapping my head around that because there are 3,700 satellites up there right now. Mm-hmm. And But the idea that you're going out there and for the first time ever, you're seeing Sputnik, you're seeing a satellite, you're seeing another moon circling mm-hmm. the Earth. Um, and it's a weird thing to try to wrap your head around, but it's it's that, that sense that, that, that fascinates me more than the, the technology or more than the things that might do it might happen in the future. And I but will I, say, I, will, and I, I agree with I all agree of them. Um, um, but the uh, uh, one yeah, thing we should say, just to head off the criti- some of our critics, is that I don't think either Ellen or I is arguing that this is the only route to go, of course, in writing science fiction in the 21st century. There's, it is, it is one response to changing times. There are plenty of other responses to do like Ian McDonald and do the, the uh, uh, straight scientific and political extrapolation thing, but do it in these areas, uh, these landscapes and nations that have not been much written about. Uh, to to do like Joan Slonczewski, um with the biology that she knows so incredibly well and, and push that forward to to focus on the politics and the near future barely day after tomorrow stuff like Cory Doctorow is writing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's, all, there's all sorts of different um, ways the field is dealing with um, uh, with the current science fictional world we're living in, um, and this uh, sense of datedness of so many of the previous texts that were that were and are so valuable to us, but we can't just keep rewriting those. We have to keep coming up with with um, uh, different approaches to try to stay uh, at least two jumps ahead of of. Uh, of the pages of New Scientist every every week, which is difficult. Oh, I, I agree completely. I, I wasn't trying to say that 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 my voice should should be the dominant voice. It's I think anybody who's who's writing who's writing good literature is going to have a unique voice and a unique perspective, whether it's historical or 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 scientific or technological or 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 whatever. The other thing that made me think about when you you were just saying that was a lot of the technology that exists today exists because the people who are now engineers read science fiction when they were children. Yeah. So the things that well, science fiction writers were writing about in the 30s and the 40s, not necessarily, it's like, oh, I could make one of those, but it inspired them. Most engineers that are working for Apple and Google and places like that have said that they read science fiction as a kid and it allowed them to imagine a future that didn't exist yet 
but that they could grow up to be engineers who could make it happen. And they didn't necessarily make that future happen, but they were inspired to yeah. do that. And, I, and that's partly what Neil Stevenson's uh, hieroglyph project is trying to inspire again. But I wanted to go in a slightly different direction. That and You and Andy, at least, are among a, a lot of writers who grew up reading more things than science fiction. And it seems to me that when you look at the earlier um, evolution of pulp science fiction from, from amazing stories through a good deal of astounding, and you did have Asimov and Heinlein and other people uh, reading each other and writing out of traditions that began with Vernon Wells and so forth. As it seems to me that and this is going to be something I'll get in a lot of trouble for because I'm making it up as I go along. But every time science fiction makes a literary advance of some sort, it's because somebody begins writing it who is bringing another literary tradition into it. Heinlein, for example, was a huge fan of, of, of James, James Branch Cable, uh, which is very odd. And there's a lot of Cabellian humor in Heinlein. Uh, later on, you get people who have been... Uh, Andy, I'm sure you must have grown up with uh, at least knowing Flannery O'Connor and Faulkner and this sort of thing. And those oh, yeah. are resources not, that can be... Not personally. Well, not personally, but if you did know them personally, I'd like to hear about them. But you see what I'm saying? The more yeah. traditions you bring into science fiction, the wider the stream gets. Well, that's it. I, did, I was not a science fiction reader as a, as a kid. I know you read, I, I read Salinger. I, I, read, uh, I read Salinger and Vonnegut until the books fell apart. Um, I probably owe more of my style to, to Salinger and, what, what, and Vonnegut writing a little bit of science fictional stuff gave me, I mean, the first stuff I was writing in science fiction in eighth and ninth grade was sort of parodies of Vonnegut. But yeah, the stuff that, the stuff that I read was all over the map and, and a lot of it, and most of it was not science fiction until I was in college and then years and years and years later. So I don't know most of the tropes and most of the, mm -hmm. the cliches and most of the things that have been done to death. So if I come to it, I'm coming to it from a completely different perspective. And, and I mean, my first story, you said, well, this is, you know, kind of uh, stereotypical blah blah blah. I said blah. off the shelf. I said and, the time. And I'm going, but I made it up. I've never I've never read this. The before. point is that my point is it worked. Yeah. Uh, and in your first story out it worked. But Andy, what 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 did you what were you reading before you started writing science fiction? Well I, I didn't well, I, start, I didn't start writing, writing fiction seriously until I was, I was gosh, till I was uh, nearly thirty years old. Before that, it was all journalistic writing I was doing. Um, but what I was reading obsessively as a kid, it included science fiction. And I think it's interesting that my public library, where most of my books came from that I read growing up, they, they had a really good science fiction collection that stopped dead at roughly 1963. <laughs> so, 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 the new, so this was in the, by this time, it was in the, the mid to late 70s. And, uh, but the new wave might as well not have happened. Um, so I read a lot of uh, Asimov and Heinlein and Cliff Simak and Bradbury and, and the, the, the whole astounding crowd and Kuttner and Moore and so forth. There, there were occasional exceptions. Um, um, Frank Herbert's Dune, I read and reread. Uh, but science fiction, you're right, was only one 
one stream of all the stuff I was reading. Uh, I'm far from the majority of it. Uh, um, the majority of it was probably uh, humor writing and nonfiction about entertainment and about old movies, which I was obsessed with. So long before I had ever seen Citizen Kane, I had read Pauline Kael's Citizen Kane book <laughs> with her, her, her long defense of Herman Mankiewicz and her Herman Mankiewicz's screenplay, yeah. of Wells and, this, and, and the collected plays of Neil Simon, which fit in one volume then, and, and all these uh, memoirs of people like Phil Silvers and Groucho Marx. I, I just I just mainline that stuff. Did you read Paul Harvey's Act One? Pardon? Did you read Act One by Moss Hart? Yes, I did. Yes. So so all that stuff, I was read. It was like I was walking behind the scenes of all this stuff I had yet to see as an audience member, and and how I got fascinated with all that I do not know. But but I but I do think my obsession with people like Robert Benchley and James Thurber and S. J. Perelman certainly made me an even more hyperverbal kid than I would have been otherwise, and certainly affected my writing in a lot of ways. Thurber was probably the single biggest influence on me uh, when I started uh, writing journalism. I did not come to people like Hunter Thompson and so forth until mm. much later when I was in uh, grad school. So maybe we should segue into old movies. I was going to say, okay, we could, we could, we could get in. Okay. We could get in. We should get into a color. One of you described, I was going to say, one of you described what, what color is and where it is and where the story came from. Okay. What color springs is a, now a state park that is about 20 miles south of Tallahassee, Florida, in the Florida Panhandle. Um, and the way the story started was I, sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, there was an article in the National Enquirer, full page, full color pictures, of Cheetah, the chimp from the Tarzan movies, uh -huh. who was dressed in like an old man and smoking cigars and living in a trailer park. And I just thought, huh. And I cut out the article and I put it in a file and I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but it, it, it amazed me that, that Cheetah was still alive because it was, you know, hmm. almost 60 years after the Tarzan movies and Tarzan movies were my favorite, favorite movies when I was a kid, afternoon TV. The original Tarzan. The original the Johnny, Johnny Weissman's Tarzan. 1930s. All other Tarzans are crap. Um, <laughs> we can get hate mail if you want, but all other Tarzans are crap. It was Johnny Weissman. I liked Gordon and Scott. But... I, and I kept finding over a period of six or seven years other bits and pieces about Cheetah or Tarzan movies or something, and I kept thinking, well, there's a story idea here, but I don't know what it is. And one, like February, I woke up and I thought, it's an Andy Duncan story. Andy Duncan, <laughs> this is an Andy Duncan story. And so I went to IFPA that year, and I, and, I, and I found Andy, and I said, Andy, let me buy you a beer. I want to pitch you a story. And Andy said, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a really bad Andy Duncan imitation now because I can't tell this story without doing it. But I'm not doing an anthology. There's no reason to buy me a beer. And I said, <laughs> Is that okay, Andy? Critique, instant critique. 
It's not. It's I, a she, she, she is not wrong. <laughs> okay, and I, all right. And I said, it's okay, let me buy you a beer anyway. So we sat out at this table in the Fort Lauderdale, whatever it was that year. I think it was still a Hilton. Um. And I told him about Cheetah and Tarzan movies and, and all of this stuff. And he said, oh, oh, that's so exciting. That's really great. And you could do this and you could do this. And at the end of our, our beers, there might have been more than one beer, I said, well, I, I think it's an Andy Duncan story. And if you want the idea, I will give it to you because mm. I don't know what to do with it. And he said, no, I think we should write it together. And then he said, you know, with both of our names on it, we might even be able to sell that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we agreed that we would do this. And, and a year later, we meet up at ICFA in yeah. the same hotel. And we sat down on Andy's porch and plotted out for about two hours. We yeah. plotted out a four-act story. Uh-huh. And we figured out who the characters were going to be and kind of decided who might write the first drafts of which pieces. And and we had and we both took notes and, and and then we went home and we said, okay, by next year we'll we'll have we'll have chunks of this story. So the next year at ICFA, I ran into Andy and and, I, and Andy says in a kind of worried voice, so have you worked much on the story? And I said, no, I really haven't done anything. And he said, oh, good, because I haven't either. <laughs> and for the next seven years, we would meet up at ICFA, and we would have that same conversation, and neither one of us had done anything, although we both liked the story. So in 2010, Andy said, what we should do is we should hole ourselves up in a hotel halfway between where you live and I live, and just spend a week and just knock this story out, because otherwise we're never going to get it done. Uh. And we looked on a map, and Andy lives in Maryland, and I live in San Francisco, and we looked on the map, and we both said, I am not going to Oklahoma in the summer. <laughs> really, not, not doing it, not going there. And I said, well, it's set in Wakulla Springs, and Wakulla Springs is the place where they filmed two Tarzan movies in 1941 and 42. Um, and they filmed The Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1952. 54, I think. Andy? 52, I, 53? I, uh, somewhere in there, I'd have to look it Some, up. I'm guessing, well, they may, they may have well, filmed no, it there. I'm guessing the film was released in Because Levi, it, the, the Tarzan movie is 41, and Levi is, is, is almost 12, so it's 53. Um, it was released in, in 54. I think, I think Gary's right. I think it was released in 54, so it would have been filmed in 53. 53, okay. So anyway, so we decided that we would go to Wakala Springs for a week. And there is a lodge there, but there's, it's kind of expensive and there's little tiny rooms. So we got a suite hotel in Tallahassee with, with two bedrooms and a living room and a, and, a, and a TV. And we spent a week in Tallahassee, Florida. And we were we were planning, and, and, and Andy's wife, Sydney, was going you guys are just going to go on a vacation. You're not going to do anything. I said, no, no, we will. We're going to write 1,500 words a day apiece. And we're going to write and we're going to knock this whole story out in a week, at least the first draft. And Sydney was kind of right. <laughs> because because I, and here, here, I will pick, here I will pick up the story. Because nothing, no, nothing Ellen has said has been wrong. I, I remember all of this exactly the same. But... That week turned out to be crucial for the whole project, because yeah. even even though the the what we wound up writing 
is, I think, remarkably similar to that initial outline we hashed out years before on the porch in Florida. Um, I don't think we would have actually written it, and I don't think we would feel as good about it as we do if we had not spent a solid week in that spot. I mean, we walked the yeah. trails around uh -huh. Wakulla Springs. We stood on the bank. We, we, we climbed the diving platform. We, we took the boat tour. We roamed the woods. We explored the old cemeteries. We, we went into a, to a general store that winds up being in the first scene of the story. We, when, when we weren't actually at the springs, we were roaming all around the, the hinterlands uh, around there, um, just going into any place that looked interesting. And we spent several days at the State Archives um, in Tallahassee. Yeah, mm -hmm. looking at all this amazing old uh, stuff Zora Neale Hurston and Stetson Kennedy had done for the WPA back in the day reading about all the old uh, black codes and Jim Crow laws. And I know, and, and a lot of that stuff wound up as, as layering in, in the finished piece. So when we left Tallahassee, um, even though we hadn't gotten much written except the prologue, um, we, were, we were both so jazzed that after that, it was a relatively simple matter to actually do the, the back and forth over the next year or so. To get the thing finished. Yeah, we spent we spent two, probably seven hour days in the Florida State Library and Archives. Just we would we would look through their files and go, okay, bring us this, and they would bring us like six boxes of stuff, and and at some point we, one of us would go, do you need to eat? And it's like, uh uh, and I mean it was it was like a, it was a great geek holiday, um, and the thing that I remember was. We took notes about the landscape and and about what it felt like and what everything looked like and we dug into a little bit of the mm -hmm. history that we wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, and yeah, that that entire week we just immersed ourselves in that world. Um, and then when when we we split up, we said, okay, well, I'll write this part and you write that part and we'll exchange manuscripts in a week and. It was another three years before we got the story completely done. Um, but because we weren't, we weren't completely idle. Of course, we had other things to write. We, uh, Ellen had a book tour. We had uh, classes and all this other stuff coming out. But always in the back of our mind, on the back burner, was was you this running off running nebulous. Yeah, you were you were writing. You were working on the banjo book and 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 teaching and and, but. But we then we started sending stuff back and forth, and we each had bits of stuff, and we would send it and go, okay, well this part works, and 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 I like the, and let me send you this other part, and then after we had about what two thirds of it, three quarters of it done, we met up at ReaderCon face to face again, and sat in a booth with beer, and really a lot of this story has to do with beer. Um, and, and said, okay, this part works, this part doesn't work, we need this part here. Um, and we got it done, what, December 19th last year. Right, we were determined it was going to be our Christmas present to one another, that we would finish this huh. and submit it somewhere. And, and it was, 
it had taken us somewhere between eight and ten years, and I'm not exactly sure where the first, the first when when that first meeting over beers was, but let's let's call it a decade. Um, and we got it all done, and it was thirty-five thousand words, and it's about Tarzan and the creature from the Black Lagoon and monsters and Jim Crow laws in the Deep South, and then we thought, okay, where do we send it? <laughs> And because we kept looking at it going, it's, 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 it's a novella. It's 35,000 words. It's, and it's not about anything that falls into any category. Well, one of okay, that's, 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 that's going to be my next question because, and I, having, I, I have read it, as you both know, and I think it's brilliant. I think it's a beautiful novella, and I, it's, it's going to be on tour.com. But I think you're going to get two questions about it. One question is the one we started this whole conversation yeah. with which is, why is this science fiction or fantasy at all, or is it, or does it make any difference? Well, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's the editor for Tor.com, who bought it, because it's twice as long as, as Tor.com it's, 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 it's a long thing to read online. And I, so I emailed Patrick and said, okay, Andy Duncan and I have finally finished this long story we've been working on for 10 years. It's 35,000 words, which is twice as long as anything you've ever taken. Do you want to see it? And he emailed me back about eight, nine minutes later and said, you and Andy Duncan, yes. Um, and he, he bought it about a month later because Andy pinged him and said, so when are you going to read this? And Patrick wrote back and said, what do you say? He said, like, I read it this afternoon. I will buy it. Um, yeah. Pick it up from there, yeah. Andy. And, and, and yes, he did. It, but, he, but he added, I, he said, I think it's great, but I have some edits to make. And so we thought, well, okay, that's fair, because we okay. thought he was, and, and we waited for a few weeks to see what the edits were, because we thought he was going to say, this whole subplot needs to go, you, you need to lose 10,000 words, you know, this doesn't make any sense, whatever. He, he had three line edits. <laughs> really? <laughs> it, involved, it involved like 15 total words, took us wow. about five minutes. Yeah. It was one one word in one sentence, one sentence that he wanted us to recast, and one thing that he thought was anachronistic and a little pointed. And and okay, this is this is one of my favorite in jokes that only Andy and I get, except for the people that are listening to this podcast. The the first part of the story is set in 1941, mm -hmm. and we were sitting in this hotel in Tallahassee trying to figure out how to telegraph that it's 1941. And mm -hmm. it's June of 1941, so the war hasn't happened in America. Right. We're trying to telegraph how to tell the reader that it's 1941 without just saying 1941. And so we get on Google and we type in 1941 and we look at all of the events that are happening in 1941. And we come to the, the point where within a three-day period, Nathaniel West and F. Scott Fitzgerald both die. And, and I said, okay, so we've got this scene in the, this little country mm -hmm. store where some guy walks in and goes, the golden age of literature is dead. Nathaniel West <laughs> is, gone, is gone. And I made Andy fall off the couch. Um, and we knew we couldn't use it because Can't. it was completely absurd. But at, there's a scene about two-thirds of the way through the story where a woman is sitting on a couch reading a book. And we had her reading Native Son. Uh -huh. And Patrick said... Her reading Native Son is too topical. I hate stories where 
somebody is reading the exact right book that they would be reading. And so now she's reading um, Day of the Locust. Okay, cool. <laughs> and, Which I think turns out to also be thematically out, but... Because it's Hollywood. Right, but but, but you don't. Uh, but it's not as it's not as hammer on the nose as as Native Son would have been. Patrick was right. Now now right now I'm positive when this airs. No, I think uh, that sounds like Patrick. Patrick, Patrick will be writhing um, and sweating like on a rotisserie because he'll think I'm doomed now. Now everybody in the world will send me uh, thirty five thousand word novellas <laughs> that are only glancingly genre. Um, yeah, I, I do not encourage everybody to do this. Let me emphasize. However, Patrick has already spun it when he first tweeted about buying this. He said mm -hmm. it was a he said it was American magical realism. <laughs> so that's that's going to be that's going to be Patrick's uh, line on it. My line on it is that it's a generational family story set in Florida with monsters. <laughs> wow, months. Okay. And, and and my elevator speech is is it's about Tarzan and the creature from the Black Lagoon and Jim Crow laws in the Deep South. And all three of those one sentence descriptions are all true. I mean, I, okay, I, I okay. love I love the fact that Patrick said that it's American magic realism because most magic realism is South America. I mean, it's 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 Marquez. It's 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 at least the the stuff that 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 I've called and. There is, I mean, Andy and I talked for, oh, five or six years about the fact that although the story is about the fantastic, there is nothing inherently fantastic that happens in the story. Well, yeah. The magic realism is such a lovely mm. description of that. Okay, nobody out there has read the story yet. They will shortly. Let me offer you a... Oh, it's coming out on Tor.com on October 2nd. Let me offer both of you a third way of reading it science fictionally, which is a way of reading that I learned from our friend Karen Joy Fowler and Sarah Canary. It's a version of Childhood's End. It's a version of Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End in that it is initially an alien contact story. It deals with a young African-American girl who encounters a higher civilization, a world she never believed that she could be part of. Which is Hollywood. Which is Hollywood. Yeah. And she becomes part of that world. And she returns to her own world in the end. That's exactly what happens to Jan in Childhood's End. Okay, I can live with that. Andy? I, 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 I say God bless you. I think from, because there's only like three people in the world that have read this story well, um, at, the, at the moment, um, because it's not out yet, but I think for me, and I'm and I'm and I'm hoping for Andy that it's it's a really rich and deep story, and there's so much stuff in it that builds and and gives you a different perspective on stuff that maybe you've never thought of or maybe you have thought of before, and it's it's very much a it's very much a southern piece. Because it's all set in, except for one one scene, which is in Hollywood. It's all set in, in Florida, um, and it's also it's that kind of American landscape that I always admired 
that that there was a writer of place and obviously I'm I'm not from Florida and, and neither is Andy but but we fell in love with it in that week that we spent there um, I don't know I don't know what colors we're, we're really pleased with it I, it's, <laughs> I will say and I will say too that I have come to care so much about this thing that that I am very nervous about it um yeah. it's it's scary almost um it's it's the the first fictional collaboration i've ever done it is and and i believe that alan has ever done it is it yeah. is by far it is by far the longest thing that's ever piece of fiction that's ever appeared with my name on it it's going to go up on tor.com so it's going to be accessible to anybody with internet access. Um, so potentially the, the readership of it is vast compared to most of my, well, compared to all of my other stuff. It's, well, and, uh, and Tor.com is a fairly premier market at this point. So there's high, high bars and high standards that we hope <clears throat> we've met. There's another thing that... Uh, we were talking to M. John Harrison a few weeks ago, and he had just put out his first Kindle single, yeah. uh, a, a short story. And, and he was astonished at how quickly, basically, if I'm not, and Jonathan, correct me if I'm Hello? misquoting Mike here, um, that you know, usually by the time a story appears, you're on to the next thing. Your emotional bond to that story is, is thinner than it was initially. Something appears online that you have an all of it, a lot of emotional investment in, and that investment is still wrong. When you start getting reader responses, the response to the story is so much more immediate than what you get with most print stories. That in 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 uh, M. John Harrison's case, he was almost shocked by it and very pleased. He thought it was wonderful. So you're well, gonna you're gonna get an immediate response. Well, hang on, Gary. Remember and allow that that one of the differences is I think Mike was able to basically log on to something and see the sales as they happened. Oh right, right, absolutely. So uh, I mean. If you have access to, say, analytics to know how your story is being down, downloaded or read or whatever else, that's got to be something where something you know it goes out there and suddenly you realize 6,000 people just bought it and another 4,000 people just bought it, another 800 people just bought it. That's That's got to be very addictive and strange. I would think so. Well, it is. It's like the social media effect where you keep checking how many Tumblr followers or how many Twitter followers you have. You, it, yeah. it's, it's, it is addictive. Uh, Tor.com does enable you to keep revisiting the site and seeing how many people have posted comments on a given yeah, piece. Yeah. But but I also think that we're like putting this huge thing out um, in this uh, in in a climate where um, how to how to put this. Um, the field is involved in a necessary, sometimes painful, but ultimately positive, unalloyed, good thing, a discussion about race and gender and a discussion of mar previously marginalized populations within the field. And I can, and much of this conversation has been going on online. Uh, much of it, I have not even been reading or keeping up with. I've been keeping up with some of it um, uh, enough to 
to deplore some things that have that are rightly being denounced and have gone wrong and to and to root for the people fighting the good fight. And then in the middle of all this, here comes this thing that's like a brick we're heaving into <laughs> the pond because, well, okay. because it's, it's all about African-Americans and we're not African-American. Um, I'm writing about a part of the country which, while I feel some affinity for it, I've never actually lived there. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. that sort of cultural imperialism potentially going on. There's well, all these language issues, politics, uh, um, uh, oh, animal rights, uh, invasive species, um, gender relations, um, abortion. How many other hot button issues are there in this in this story, there's, Alan? I'm sure I'm forgetting a few. There's class. There's wealth. Uh, there's there's uh, power struggles. Um, but the the thing that I think I, one of the reasons I think that it took us ten years to write this story was that we were aware of the fact that we had to get it all as right as we possibly could with as much thought and respect and analysis of, I mean, I kind of, I, I forget that these people aren't real. Um, and, and I know that because I was, when I was writing stuff and I was sending it to you, I felt like I was, not that I was writing to a higher standard than I usually write to, because I tend to think that I write to a very high standard, but because both of our names were on it, it wasn't just me. And so I was writing something that would pass Andy Duncan muster as well as it would pass Ellen Clages muster. Um, and I think that by the time we got done with it, we had both written if not the best stuff we've ever written, at least really damn close. And 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 because it's something I don't think it's something that either of us would have written solo. And that was that was on my mind the whole time too. That I didn't want the thing to read not that there's anything wrong with an Andy Duncan story or an Ellen Clages story, but I wanted it very much to read like this this third thing, this this Ellen slash Andy this Clagis slash Duncan story that that had not existed in the world before. It was like we were bringing a new writer into being. And that's part of that's part of my jitters about this, too. Uh, I love um, the the case of Henry Kuttner and Catherine Moore in the day because bibliographers just throw up their hands once they got married. Yeah. Everything that appeared under either byline or a joint pseudonym was pretty much on some level collaborative. And it's hard to tell. It's impossible to tell who wrote what or what influence people had. So and 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 it's not my we talked at one point where we said when people say who wrote this and who came up with that, that we were just going to say. We're not answering those questions. We didn't want to talk about it in those terms. But not only that, I'm already forgetting. I did a yeah. I did a reading. I did a reading uh, from a big chunk of the middle. Um, the same section I read at the University of Kansas this summer, and I read here at Frostburg State Center for Creative Writing just last week. 
and each time and it went over very well but each time i was reading as i was going some part of me was thinking now who did write that (laughs) (laughs) sentence to sentence paragraph paragraph page to page and i no longer remember i i remember who wrote the first draft but by the time we went back and forth and so many layers got added on um it's 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 it, it, it has become this, this extremely unique thing in my, uh, in my corpus. And that's why I keep sort of being jittery as the date advances. I'll probably be a so man. You, you really like don't remember second. that? That's... No, I mean, it, at some point, I was aware that I was writing some of the things that I wrote the first drafts on. I was reading as if I was imagining them being read aloud by Andy. Ah. And Andy, you said that at some point you were mad, you were writing some scenes, saying, "Well, what would Clay just do with this scene?" So That's right. even our raw material, we were being aware of the other one. And then I did. I we agreed that because it was my idea, I would do the final editing pass. And I spent a couple of months tweaking syntax so that I started sounding more like Andy, and Andy started sounding more like me. And no, I neither one of us so, really remember. Well, we that's cool. Remember who wrote the uh-huh. first drafts, but there was so much back and forth between the final product that that it really is a collaboration. It's not like I wrote this chunk, he wrote this chunk, I wrote this chunk. It's like, and you can't see this because it's you a can't. podcast. <laughs> but I'm taking my two hands and, and interlacing my fingers, and some of those fingers are Andy, and some of those fingers are me, and. At this point, you don't know. And at this point, it's, it doesn't matter because it's, it's not. But what you have what he new, said is it's 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 a completely new author. Neither one of us would have written this story yeah. anywhere near what the final version turned out to be because not only were we, were we writing like each other, we were writing for each other. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, because collaboration. You're, I mean, Andy, you're right. Cutner and Moore seem to have the symbiotic relationship for. Henry Kuttner could leave a page in the typewriter and Catherine Moore would start typing on it and nobody would know who did it. Or they'd wake up at 3 or in the wake morning and say, what if the alien was pink? And it's like, oh, okay. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, I, 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 I've talked to Peter Straub about his, his two collaborations with Stephen King, The Talisman and Black House, and they were having fun partly. I mean, I hope you guys had fun doing this. Oh, we had fun. But part of what, okay. part of what they do is Steve... Steve would say, I'm going to write my chapters in imitation of Peter Straub. And Peter would say, I'm going to write my chapters in imitation of Stephen King. And that will really confuse them. And it did, it turns out. Well, and, and because, I mean, we, we did each write first drafts of chunks. But then the other one would make suggestions and we'd make plot changes and we would make dialogue changes. And somebody would rewrite parts of something. And then we would do, so there's... Almost, I mean, there are probably half a dozen sentences out of 35,000 words that are raw, Andy or Ellen. Uh-huh. But everything else is, we sat down and and mixed them up like right. pie crust. There's, a, there's, some, there's some Crisco and there's some flour, uh-huh. but by the time you take the knife and the fork and go through it, it's pie dough. Yeah. And, and without giving without too much away, I do think... Uh, thing. As I read it now, um, it seems to me that I can see as the story progresses, I can see like the Plagius thread and the Duncan thread like merging together or, or a better 
metaphor, uh, one stream merging with the other. And certainly that final, uh, the final big sequence, which is actually the one we started with out by the pool talking. Um, uh -huh. That had so many complete drafts going back and forth that I think that one really is as, as much of a, of a hybrid of the two of us as any of the rest of it is. Um, and, uh, and, and that, that makes me feel really good. It's like, um, for some thematic reason, it, it seems thematically apt for that to happen. And I don't know if any other reader would pick up on that at all, but that's how it reads to me anyway. That the story is like coming together. I guess every story does that, but I'm just very conscious of these uh, styles, varied styles and themes and preoccupations all becoming this, this unified thing uh, by the end. At least that's how it reads to me. Yeah, I mean, since neither one of us has children and we're really never going to have children together, um, <laughs> but this is close because there's so much of each of us in all of the parts of this story that there wouldn't have been if it had been just me or just you. Um, and I'm curious, what parts have you been reading out loud? To oh, what parts have I been reading? Uh, just the last few weeks, I was reading, uh, there's a scene in the middle where Levi over the, the, the kid, the, the son of the woman who is introduced at the beginning of the story, by now we're in the 1950s, Black Lagoon is being filmed, and he over, there's various things, but the main thing I've been reading is he overhears a portentous conversation between his mother and her boyfriend, a conversation okay. that is in part about in part about him, and 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 that that's that's the that's the that's the piece I've been focused on lately. Well, I've read I've read the 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 third section, which is an interview with Cheetah, um, <laughs> a couple of times to an audience, and every single time I'll have people come up and go, "Well, I know which part you wrote." And I know which part Andy wrote, and and then and I will say, yeah, you're probably right. Tell me, and they're it's opposite. They always think that the part that I did the draft on was what was what you invented, and the thing that that you did the draft on was the thing I invented, and and <laughs> I, I'm kind of tickled by that. We we did a reading two years ago at ICFA, um, yeah. and we tag teamed, and not only did we both read chunks of the story which was about half done at that mm. point but we we read one scene as if it was a play mm -hmm. so andy did one voice and i did the other voice and and we were going back and forth and 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 even then people were coming up going well i know which part i know which part you you want to be and, and we're going <laughs> yeah right <laughs> no you, you actually don't and, and andy i mean sydney sydney has read this now and sydney knows yeah. your work as well as anyone yeah so could she tell she hasn't tried. Could she tell? She, she, hasn't, she tried? hasn't tried. We have not had that conversation. Hmm. Um, I, I I I talk to her about everything I'm doing, 
So she sure. heard me talking enough about it as as we were working on it to probably get a, a, a sense of who was doing what, at least at first draft. But no, we have not had that line-by-line conversation. She, uh, she, she admires Ellen's work as fully as much as I do. Um, but she... Um, um, she has not weighed in on this, actually, yeah. and well, and okay. I hope I hope that is I hope that is and I haven't asked, and I hope that's because it just reads the way it should read as a story. Because let let's face it, um, if we're if we're before an audience of people in the life whom we've known for years, who are friends and acquaintances of ours. Um, of course, they're going to be more inclined to do this the same way that in the day people who knew Fred Pohl and Cyril Cornbluth would yeah. enjoy reading the things as they came out, think, oh, that sounds like Pohl and that's, that sounds like Cyril. Um, but most of the readers of this are going to be like that audience I had in Frostburg last week. Um, they don't really know either of us. Yeah. So, so they're just gonna they're just gonna react to this as as a story, and 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 I think uh, um, so. So it will uh, that that will be the true that will be the true test. Not uh, not who wrote what, and how I, it how I it plays as a unified piece. I drove from San Francisco to to Wisconsin this in in May with uh, Karen Fowler. And we, we talked most of we actually never turned on the car radio, but at one point I had said, Andy and I have, have, have written this story together. And she said, oh, that sounds great. I, I'd really love to read it. And I said, well, next time it's your turn to drive, I'll read it to you because I, I have the laptop. Um, and so for three hours one day and like three hours the next day, because really it's a very long story, through most of Wyoming and Nebraska, I read Wakulla Springs aloud to Karen Joy Fowler. Um, and at the end of it, she just looked at me and she said, damn. So that's what Karen felt. Can you get her to put uh, that on? Yeah, <laughs> like, there's the blur. Damn. Right. Uh, well, I've got to ask, I mean, because it's the obvious question to me to ask as well. After all this effort with the story coming out in October and everything else, is this the last time you're going to write together? Hmm. Well, I hope not, but we kind of want to see how this baby does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't wait for well, reader reaction. If you you oh, both had a okay. wonderful experience. Are here. we are we leaping into I, another thirty five thousand word novella right now? No. No. Andy's got stuff he's working on. I've got stuff I'm working on. Do I want to do this again in the future? Hell yeah. Well, collaborations are an odd thing. Oh, wait, wait. Let Andy. Go ahead, answer, Andy. Please. And what's your answer? I, I, I would I would certainly be open to it. I don't think we could just say let's collaborate on something and then go looking for a topic. I think no. it would have because I think what, what what was great about this was the uh, um, that the topic chose us in a way that all this 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 material was tugging at Ellen's sleeve all this time. And to yeah. the years, Ellen, that you were talking about, that we were working on this in theory, we should also add all those years that you were just accumulating something with no, 
piles of research with no special purpose just because it was tugging at your sleeve for some reason. Yeah. And yeah, and that's what you, that's what you came to me with and and it's like all this stuff it was it was so beautifully unified and yet mismatched. I, at one point you sent me this enormous envelope that I happily opened and sorted through of the scores and scores of pages of things that you had photocopied through the years um, or printed out through the years. And, and there, was, there was no, uh, she did not include anything like an outline or a set of explanations. It was just this massive stuff. And I spent a few days happily reading it all. So I'd be reading about Tarzan and Cheetah. And then mm -hmm. I'd be reading about the black codes and the water fountains. And then I'd be reading about, you know, these prehistoric giant armadillo, you know, that's on display in the museum in Tallahassee. And then I was reading just, and it was like one damn thing after another. It was, it was, it was like rummaging through the mind of a friend of mine and a writer I admire so much. And as I was sitting and as I turned up each new unrelated thing, I was not only laughing with delight and saying, well, of course, this has to be in it too. But I was also making the connections as I went through and saying, of course, I know exactly why she put all this in the same yeah. envelope. Yeah. It, too. It, it makes complete sense. And I think we would... <laughs> When we do this again, and I do think it's a win rather than an if, but I do think that it's going to have to be something that is tugging on our sleeve, at least one of us to begin with, and then turns into something that's so variegated and bizarre that only the other one would understand what the connections <laughs> are uh, from yeah. the outside. I, I, cool. think, I think cool. it's going to have to work that way. Yeah, I think I think that that's exactly it. It's like my saying, "This is an Andy Duncan story," and taking it to you, and then you going, "Oh, we'll we'll run in this direction," and I'm I'm hoping that it's sometime I come up with another idea or you come up with another idea and you go, "Damn, Ellen would do something with this," and you know it it might be ten years from now, it might be it might be two months from now, who knows? But yeah, I would love to do it again. Um, I I think we're we're Jonathan's. Yeah, what's, what's your time? Well, I was going to say, with with that in mind, it might be you know, with with October still in front of us, and we really shouldn't be talking until the the story comes out. We are somewhat okay. over our typical le length, but we, it was going very well. But it might be a great time to perhaps wind up and and thank everybody for taking part because it's been a fascinating I would, conversation. I, I want to tell one more story. Okay, one more story. Anyone. Which is where I was going with that introduction to maybe we're running out of time. The prologue to the story is the first piece of fiction that Andy and I did, and it's the only piece of fiction that we collaborated on when we were in the same room. And what we did when we would go back to the hotel in Tallahassee at night after driving around in the swamps and going to the archives and everything was we had he had... Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I had a bunch of Weissmuller, Tar Johnny uh, right. Tarzan movies. So we would put them on the flat screen in the room, and we would watch these old movies, and we would take notes, and we would pause the movie and go, oh, okay, so we need to talk about this, and we'd both take notes. And we decided that the prologue, there needed to be a prologue, 
and the prologue is pretty much the prologue to the creature from the black lagoon i was going to say it's a crawl it's it's, 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 a, it's the it's, crawl from the creature from the black lagoon that andy and i sat on a couch for two and a half hours rewriting in order to make it be the introduction to our story and and we we'd write something and then we would read it out loud and one of us would go that's close but it's not quite there and then and then we would sit in silence for a moment and then one of us would go we need to work the work mystery in there somewhere and then we would sit in silence and do you remember anything else about that i no i remember it exactly that way and and and, and, and so after about two and a half hours we had a paragraph that was a complete <laughs> and total collaboration with between Ellen Plagius, Andy Duncan, and whoever wrote the prologue for the creature from the Black Lagoon with the, the scroll. Um, and that was where we started with. Mm. That was the only piece that we wrote together in the same space. Right, right. Face to face, discussing it line by line. That's right. And of course, it's the prologue. It's it's the first page, and that sets the tone for everything else. So it set the tone for for the project. Then we could go off on our own. And, right. and and work on it because we we knew somehow that prologue had like encapsulated everything else we wanted to do with it. Yeah. And and it it, it has chunks of I mean, there's a, it's a four section story. Yeah. And it has chunks of each of the four sections in that prologue. Mm hmm. And 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 I and I just remember us at the end of that looking at each other and going, okay then. Well, the story we this, that part's done. <laughs> the story is is Wakulla Springs. People, W A K U L L A H. Am I correct? No, no H. No H. W A K U L A Springs. Okay. And if you Google it, you can find lovely pictures. It is. And the underwater scenes from the creature from the Black Lagoon really were filmed there. And and Tarzan's secret adventure. No, Tarzan's secret treasure and Tarzan in New York. All of the underwater scenes from those two movies are also filmed there. Cool, brilliant. And and Airport seventy seven, which is a terrible movie, and we left it out. That's <laughs> a good thing you did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We wouldn't have read you it if you put that in. Story about the first time you read the story and you uh, uh, the Don Draper bit. Yeah. We don't really have time. Okay. No. <laughs> No, but when we get off the air, when we go off the air, him. I will tell Jonathan. Okay, right, okay. I tell Andy's story if I can remember. Okay. Well, with that in mind, thank you very much, Ellen Clages, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks thank you very much, Andy Duncan, for joining us. It's been a delight. Thank you very much. And Gary, I guess inevitably for the hundred and fifty-sixth time, we will talk again next weekend. Next weekend, we will be back with the usual suspects, meaning you and me, and maybe someone else. And we have our theme song now here. And all right. <laughs> and after three years and 155 episodes, we remain now, as always, the Mullers of Good Street. Thank you. All right.